Well, we, uh, last week we began a new series. I feel it. I just feel movement coming on. I got to move that. Uh, last week we began a new series uh, called In the Beginning. And the purpose of this series that we're in, we're going to be in for a little while, is to, to consider and understand who we are, right? What God created us to be. Um, what went wrong in the fall and what we lost in the fall and what we get back through redemption through Jesus Christ. And so as I said last week, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 to 3 uh, from now until Easter. And last week we began this series by looking at the Imago Dei, which is the, the theological term for the image of God. And it is the understanding and the conviction that all human beings have, made, have been made in the image and the likeness of of God. And so we talked about that last week, and it's straight from Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Uh, this is what makes us unique to all the rest of creation, that human beings are the only creatures that are set apart in this way, uniquely made in the image and likeness of our God. And we talked about three truths last week that come from the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. Truth number one is just the basic reality that we were created by God. And that with that, there are implications that come. It means that we have a specific purpose, right? We said that every created thing has a specific purpose. We also have boundaries and we have limitations, that we have a proper way of living. And that because we've been created by God, we are under his dominion. He is in charge. He's over all of us. And then truth two is just we stared directly into the fact that we are made in his image and his likeness. And the only qualification for that is that you are human. And so congratulations, you all are, like, you, you fit in that category, right? So we're good. We're all made in the image of God. And this is one of those things that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the foundation for human dignity. It is a foundation for human rights. It is the foundation for how we stand on different ethical decisions like abortion and euthanasia and genetic engineering. And then truth number three that we looked at last week is the fact that God made us male and female. And the image of God is uh, shown equally in both genders. And the fact that he made us male and female is good and it is right. And when we mess with God's created order, it is outside of the good design that God has made, and it is usurping his authority. And so that's what we talked about last week. And then we said, why, why does all of this matter? Why does the Imago Dei matter? And it's because the Imago Dei, the image of God, provides the basis for how we approach every area of life. And it's gave you the reminder that every single person that you come face to face with is made in the image of God, whether you agree with them or not, whether they have completely different ideology than you, we are all made in the image of God. We all have intrinsic value. And I gave you a growth step last week based on James 3, 9, which says when he's talking about the tongue, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and, fa or we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And I said to all of us last week, we need to consider who have we spoken against? Who have we cursed? Who have we desired less than good for? And we need to repent of that, and we need to pray for that person and bless them in a tangible way. And so I hope that you didn't just hear that and then leave here and not think about it again. I hope that you actually 
did that because one of the things that we were talking about last week is the importance of obedience. Not just having knowledge, but actually living out that knowledge. And so I hope you took that step of obedience last week. And that brings us to this morning. Our, our focus this morning is on man's purpose. And I am excited to preach because I love preaching to men. And so uh, we established that last week all created things have a specific purpose. And so this week we want to look at what is man's purpose. And we're going to get started by uh, looking at the higher level kind of general purpose for all of humanity. And then we're going to narrow that down to look specifically at men. So if you look at the creation story, it is broken down into two parts. We see Genesis 1 and we see Genesis 2. Those are two parts of the creation story. And the way it kind of flows is that Genesis 1 is this overview, kind of this 30,000-foot overview where it talks about how God made all the different pieces of creation. And then Genesis 2 zooms in. And it gives us this more detailed account about the creation of man and woman. And it tells us specifically how God created them. And so it says, for man, he took uh, dirt and he formed it together. And then he breathed into that form the breath of life and created man. And that is unique to creation. He doesn't do that with anything else. He creates other creatures from the ground. Man is the only one that he breathes the breath of life into. And so that is unique to man. And then woman comes along. He puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib from his side and creates the woman Eve. And that is unique to creation. The woman is the only creature not created from the ground. I think it's because uh, women don't like to get dirty. <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually know. But, but women are created uniquely the way that men are. And so Genesis one and two kind of gives us those differing overviews. And in the same way, Genesis one gives us this, this general purpose for humanity. It's, it's general, but it's foundational to who we are and what we're supposed to do. And then Genesis two shows how that purpose plays out uniquely in the role of men and the role of women. And so we're going to start in Genesis one and we're going to continue what, we're going to consider what is the general yet foundational purpose of humanity. And it's found in Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 1.28. Uh, it, it describes humanity's purpose for us. I'm going to read them. We're just going to highlight the key words from each of these verses. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so from these two verses, we get kind of six key words or phrases that describes humanity's purpose. First, from verse 26, it says, have dominion. And then in verse 28, it says, be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and rule. And so 
there is some overlapping meanings in those six words. And so from this, I, I think we can narrow it down to kind of three clear directives that God gives humanity. Directive number one is that we are to have dominion, that we are to rule and we are to subdue all of creation on earth. And this goes back to what we talked about last week, that God has made humanity the pinnacle of his creation on earth. He's given us authority over the rest of it. Hebrews 2 verse 7, taught when talking about man, he says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. After asking the question in Psalm 8, who is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist reflects in verse 6, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so as God's imagers, he has made us a mirror, in a sense, reflecting back to him his own glory, right? As the one who reigns over all of creation. As we function in the role that he has given us as his representatives on earth, we have authority over part of his creation that reflects back his own glory. Dominion means to, to rule and to reign. It means to power over. It means to subdue or hold a position of command over something. This authority is tangibly seen. It's tangibly practiced in the garden right away when God brings the animals to Adam and lets Adam name all of the animals. We see it in Genesis 2.19. It says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so this is Adam exercising the role that God gave humanity to do, to have dominion, to rule over. Now, in our world today, the idea of dominion the idea of rule, the idea of reign, of bringing something into subjection, that often has negative kind of authoritarian connotations to it. Because leadership and authority in our world has been sinfully twisted and has gone sinfully wrong. Much of leadership and authority that we see in our world is not a reflection of what God meant by dominion. And the part of the reason is that, that sin has twisted our view of ownership versus stewardship. Let me give you an example. God's Word teaches in Romans 13 that the government is there for the good of people. Right? A government that functions for people's good understands, maybe subconsciously, they may not actually realize it, but subconsciously, functioning as stewards of the people that they have been entrusted with. That is a government's role. Authoritarianism starts to come in when governments and leaders think that they own their people, that there is an indebtedness to them by the people, that the people owe them allegiance beyond living by the reasonable laws of the country. This is when authoritarianism starts to come in. It's this issue of misunderstanding ownership versus stewardship. And a proper understanding of humanity's authoritative role in creation requires that we understand it's one of stewardship. It is not one 
of ownership. We must take the humble view that all of creation, what we have been given dominion over, doesn't ultimately belong to us. It is for us, but it belongs to God. And he has entrusted it to us. This is the right view of all that we have. This is the right view of how we handle natural resources. This is the right view of how we handle food, how we treat animals. This is the right view that comes into our own family, our children. We are to steward them for the glory of God and our spouses, right? Like Kate and I are one flesh, but I do not own her and she does not own me. God has gifted her to me to steward her well, but she is my father's. And you better believe if I mistreat her, my father's seeing that, right? It's when we start to think that we own our spouses, that's when abuse and those sort of horrific things that are against God's creation come into a relationship. You are stewarding your wife, you are stewarding your husband for your father in the time that he has given you on earth. And so we'll understand God's view of dominion more as we dig into man's purpose in a moment, but directive number two that we have been given is that we are to be fruitful. And in this context, uh, in the creation story, it is referring to the fruit, the, the seed of man. It is referring specifically to the bearing of children. And we will talk more about this in a couple weeks when we look at God's purpose for marriage. Uh, but we are to bear children. And now, as I, as I say that, I also understand that that is becoming increasingly hard. And there are many that suffer with infertility and the struggle of getting pregnant. And that is one of those awful things that is the result of the fall and the world that we are now living in. And so if, if you're dealing with that sort of thing, just understand, like, that's, that's one of those awful things that came with the fall that we have to walk through, and it's horrific. We understand that a little bit. We also see that, listen, it's becoming increasingly maligned in our culture, in our world, to even have children. It's, it's twisting God's good design. But you're, you're hearing this narrative that's increasingly growing right now not to have kids for the sake of the planet. That's crazy. But it's this growing narrative right now. We see countries where they limit, right, in China, the one-child rule. This is no longer in place. I think they can have two now. But they limit children. And it's a scourge on God's good design. We are to be fruitful. Third purpose of humanity is that we are to multiply and we are to fill the earth. Right? A, big, a big part of this is bearing children and raising them up, but I kept it separate because it's not just that. Right? To, to multiply and to fill the earth, it, it includes this idea of discipleship. Right? We are to disciple others in, in the way that they should live, in the reality of who Jesus Christ is, and we fill the earth with followers of Jesus. Like That's what it looks like in our context, that proper discipleship leads to multiplication. And so we are to teach, we are to direct, uh, we are to help others in the way that they should go. And that's multiplication, that's filling the earth. And so this is man's purpose, this is humanity's purpose. We are to have dominion, we are to be fruitful, we are to multiply, and we are to fill 
the earth. And I always have to kind of put this uh, undergirding idea behind all of it, that all of that is to the ultimate purpose of the glory of God, right? Because all of it is about stewardship, that it's ultimate his, and it's all going to go back to him. And so it's all about the glory of God underneath everything. And so that is humanity's purpose. And now let's move on to man's purpose and how we actually kind of do those things and what it looks like. And so as we move to man's purpose, I think it's important that I share the viewpoint that I am coming at this from so that you understand how I'm approaching it. I believe that God has established undoubtedly and unequivocally that men and women are created equal. That is firmly established in Genesis 1.27, when it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Right? Both sexes are image bearers of God. Both sexes have equal value with one another, and anything that reduces the value, the dignity, the worth, anything that devalues the competency of one sex over the other, any ideology that's purporting that one sex is better than the other, more important than the other, more needed than the other, it's straight from hell. It's not true. And I say that because I think it's important for what I say next for some people knowing that some are going to differ with my view. I believe that it is baked into the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it is baked right into the creation story that men and women were created equal, but not the same. They are equal in value and different in function. Both are called to have dominion over the earth. But their role in that call is different. God has made us this way with these differences and it's beautiful. And there are increasingly numbers of people who hold the view that men and women are basically the same. That their roles and their function are interchangeable. And I just don't see that in God's design. That's my conviction in trying to remain faithful to God's word. I know others land differently. I know some pastors and leaders that I deeply trust that land differently than me in this. But my conviction is God made men and women different, and those differences complement. And men and women need one another in their respective roles for creation to truly flourish. And that's brought into all aspects of creation, including the church, your homes, everything. My concern, and why I wanted to say the first thing before I say that, is that sometimes people hear the view that men are made for certain roles and women are not, and women are made for certain roles and men are not, and because of our culture's mistreatment, because of our culture's devaluing of women, which is horrific and evil, they bring that kind of preconceived notion into that statement 
And they don't hear the second part, that there are things that women excel in and are uniquely made for that men are not. And they only hear the first part. There's things that men can do that women shouldn't. And they think that's misogynistic. It's God's design. We are equal, but we are different. And so that's the lens that I'm coming at this from. That's the lens that I'll be coming at next week from when we talk about woman's purpose. And so what is man's purpose? How does he function? What is his role in having dominion? And Genesis 2.15 gives us a really good idea of what his role looks like. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, this may be talking about a garden, okay? But the implications are far beyond Adam, right? It's not, it's not just simply saying Adam's a gardener. You need to work it and keep it. The implications are far beyond that, okay? <laughs> that was his context of being in the Garden of Eden. But the purpose of working and keeping extends to your context, men, exactly where you are at. The man's role is to work, and the man's role is to keep. You know, one of the sad realities of our world is that manhood is heavily under attack. We live in a culture that is bent on destroying the very thing that we desperately need, strong, godly men. Culture tells young men, you're the problem. If you are raising young men, our culture's aim is increasingly to emasculate them, to teach them that their maleness is a problem. It is part of this push to flatten out gender, to make the idea of men and women fluid, and it's evil. And all that it produces is men who are terrified to be men, men who have no idea how to be men, because if they show any ounce of strength, they're labeled as misogynists. Men who cannot lead well because they're told, sit down and be quiet, you do not get an opinion. Men who are overly submissive, who will not stand up when we need them to stand up. Men who are stunted emotionally and completely unsure of themselves. They will not stand on anything because they're told they can't. They don't know and won't know how to be husbands. They will not know how to be fathers. And they will struggle to find their place. And this is what culture is doing to our men. And there's so much to say on this. And I could spend so much time on it, but I can't right now. In a few weeks when we talk about man's fall, what specifically happened to men, we are going to dig into that more. But what we need to understand, church, is that we need to be the light in this. We need to be that place that says God has made a better way. God has shown a better way. We need to hold up for men what it means to be strong and godly in our culture. So what is a man's role? 
Well, first, a man's role is to work. Work comes from the Hebrew word abad. And it's translated work, and it's translated serve. The usage of this word throughout the Old Testament gives us some handles on what it looks like. Often, with the, the connotation this word is used, it's used in relation to serving others, to serving God. Throughout the history books, Abad is used to describe the duties of the Levites in service to the Lord in the temple. And so, the Levites were the tribe selected by God to serve him and his people through temple work. And this included things like playing music, standing guard at the temple, bringing sacrifices. When the temple was portable, when it was a tabernacle, when they were in the wilderness, the Levites were the ones who would tear it all down, pack it all up, transport it, and rebuild it when they got to the new location. And so when we see God say, work, it is heavily service-based meant. And it's pretty easy if we just look at the example of how it's used in the Old Testament, how it's used to describe the Levites' work, to see what it means. It means four things. It means work in the service of God, work in the service of others, work for the glory of God, and work for the good of others. That's a man's call when it says to work. That can be brought into any space that you are in. If you are a spouse, men, your job is to serve God, to serve your wife for the glory of God, for the good of your wife. With your kids, you are serving God and serving your kids. For the glory of God and the good of your kids. Anything, any area that you are in, this is your aim, men. Your aim is not to work for you. It is not to work for your good. Your aim is to lay your life down for the good of those around you and the glory of your Father in heaven. Like, it's, it's enough with all this kind of manhood that just chases after what we want. It's silly, it's ridiculous, and it's childish. We are here to serve. That's why we're here. In every area, at work, in our families, in anything that God gives us, we serve. Lay down your life. That's what Jesus said. Lay down your life. That's what work is, man. And then he says keep. Keep comes from the Hebrew word shamar. It means to keep, it means to watch, it means to preserve, it means to guard. Throughout the Old Testament, this word is often used to describe the practice of spiritual duties. It's used to describe the keeping of commandments. One of the ways that it's primarily used, again, is describing the, the Levite's role of guarding the temple of God. That's pretty significant. So the, the picture of what this means, when God says you are to keep men, it goes back to that picture of stewardship. You are to take care of. You are to watch over. You are to do for the good of whatever God has placed in your hands. This means that 
We know when we need to fight. We know when we need to stand up for a battle when it is good and it is right to do so. One of the issues of the fall is that men have become far too passive. We either get angry about the wrong things and passive about the right things. And we need men that know when it is right to stand up and fight and take a stand. That's what keeping is all about. It also means in your family, you are the moral compass. Young men, in your relationship, you are the moral compass. If your girlfriend is the one that's keeping you from doing things you shouldn't be doing, that's wrong. It's you that takes the lead on that. We are to be the moral compass of our family. Because our job is to watch over, to protect, to keep, to guard those hearts and those lives that the Lord has entrusted us to. A couple last things about the role of men that I think is clear in the Genesis creation story. I think that God created man first. The fact that he did that speaks to the relationship between man and woman and man's purpose. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So Adam was in the garden for a while by himself. We don't know how long. Could have been a day. Could have been a week. I don't think it was that long. I think God realized he needs help. I don't think it was that long. But he was in the garden for a certain amount of time. God says, this isn't good. He needs a helper. We're going to talk about exactly what that means next week. And I don't think it's what a lot of you think. Women, you got a massive role. Massive role to play. But he created man first. And I, sp- I think that speaks to the order of headship. And it speaks to the order of leadership. John Piper, I love the way he says it. He calls it the firstness of responsibility. I love that. The firstness of responsibility. So it's not to say that my wife doesn't have responsibility, but when it comes to my family, that responsibility, first and foremost, lands on my shoulders. And that's good. And that's right. It's like in the garden when the fall happened, right? We know God went to Adam. What'd you do? What did he do? <laughs> but God went to Adam, and it's because he created him first. There's this reality of headship, of, of leadership that men are responsible for. He's given us the responsibility to initiate. He's given us the responsibility to lead. And a lot of that is, is in service, too. Right? It doesn't mean that we're, we're just constantly like, hey, follow me, let's go. Right? It's also recognizing, man, my wife is so much more gifted in this area than I am, and so please take that. You, you take that because I know that the Lord has gifted you in this area. It's understanding the giftings that God has given you in your family and using them well. For his glory. 
I think the, the last thing that we see, which kind of goes back to the, the reality of, of keeping, is that if you notice in the Genesis story, man is given the moral law. God gave it to Adam. Right? Genesis 2, 16 to 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You'll notice that in the creation story, God doesn't come back after Eve is created and say, Eve, you shall not eat of the tree. He gave that command to Adam. What was Adam's role then? Communicate it. Adam was responsible for communicating and teaching Eve the moral law that God has given. He doesn't repeat it to Eve. And so again, this tells us that men, we are to be the moral compass of our families. We are to oversee the moral leadership of our families. And the sad thing is, in a lot of spaces, that is desperately lacking. If it wasn't for the wife, things would go completely off rails. And it should not be that way. Ultimately, men, to work and to keep, our life is not to be idle. We are to have times of rest, but we are not to be idle. We are not to be passive. We are to be busy in a healthy way, not like our culture shows, but in a healthy way in all things that the Lord has given us, working and keeping for His glory and for the good of others. And I'm telling you, if we can get that right, we're not perfect, but if we can get that right most of the time, we would be amazed how our world would flourish. Man, I've got a growth step for you this week. We want to work against that idea of selfishness. Listen, we, we can all be incredibly selfish at times. Right? We can think of ourselves before others. So men, your growth step this week is before you do anything, whether it's go to work, whether it's go to engage your kids, your wife, whatever you have, consider how you can be of service to God and the people that are, he has given you for the glory of God and for the good of those people in every realm of influence that you have. That's your job this week. Every morning when you get up, every new situation you find yourself in, God, how can I serve you? How can I serve them for your glory and their good? And you'll be amazed at the opportunities that you'll have to live that out this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the beauty of your creation. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's, it's lovely how you have made men and women. How you have made them equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in honor. Thank you, Father. Thank you for how you have knitted each and every person together. 
Father, may we know, may each one of us in here know that we have value, that we have dignity because we are made in your image. Father, I pray for the men in here. Oh, Lord, I pray that your strong right hand would lead them and guide them. Father, that in this church we would be filled with men who, first of all, love you and are not ashamed to shout that from the rooftops. Love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. And Father, I pray that we would have men in this church that would step into this purpose of working and keeping, of serving those that you have entrusted us with, that we would get up off of our butts and work hard for the sake of those around us and serve those around us to your glory and for their good. Father, that we would be men of uprightness, that we would be men of right moral standing, that we would understand that you have entrusted us with little souls if we have children, with the soul of one of your beloved daughters if we have a wife, and that we are to keep and hold and cherish that heart and that soul so carefully. Father, that we would know when to show strength and we would know when to be humble and we would know when to show emotion and vulnerability. Godly maleness is not always a show of strength. It is a show of vulnerability to you. And so, Lord, work in our hearts. I pray for every man in here that this week we would begin to put this into practice through this growth step. That, that we would, in every situation that we walk into, just say, God, how can we serve you? How can we serve them for your glory and their good? in every situation we find ourselves. And may this week, as we, we practice this, may it become something that is just a part of our lives. Every room we walk into, okay, God, what do you have for me? Every time we get up in the morning, okay, God, what do you have for me? Every time we walk into our workplace, every time we sit down face-to-face -face with our spouses, every time we have a moment with our children, okay, God, what do you have for me? And may we be men that go to bed at night exhausted, not because we're up playing video games, wasting time, but because we have served and lived meaningfully that day. I pray this for every heart in here, for every man. In Jesus' name, amen.